0: Pastor John will be preaching this morning from uh, Hebrews 6, 9-12. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you. Again, the text is Hebrews 6, 9-12. Though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The reason I chose this text is because on Tuesday of this week, at the pastor's conference, Sam Storms, pastor from Oklahoma who was speaking to us used it as the foundation of his lecture. And what leaped out of the text to me was something I'm always on the alert for when reading the Bible. Namely, texts which show the combination or the relationship between God-centeredness and sensitivity to people. We are always... Prone to separate these things. We're always being tempted by Satan to put asunder what God has joined together. We're always being pressed to think that if you're going to be a radically God-centered people, you will probably not be very good at serving people, loving people, being sensitive people, caring for people. Or, if you are radically... People-oriented people, you probably won't be very good at worship, and you probably will use God rather than worship God. Satan really wants us to make this an either-or proposition. He wants us to opt. He really doesn't care which one you go for either, I don't think. He doesn't care if you'd be a God-centered person who doesn't love people, or a people-centered person who doesn't worship God and just uses God. Just as long as you don't get it together, Satan be just fine. You'll be happy. Now, you remember Jesus. Let's put Jesus' word out here before we jump into this text. The Pharisees came and said to test him. They put one of their number, a lawyer, before him and said, Which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And I, I have this picture in my mind that he pauses and he looks at this hyper-religious group and, and reads them to see whether they're kind of smugly saying, oh yeah, right, we got that. That's good, that's a good answer. We know that too. And then he adds, and the second is like it. He shall love your neighbor with the same burning zeal that you love yourself. Now Jesus, basically in answering like that, was saying, don't let Satan put asunder what God has joined together. Keep it together. Now I want very much in my life To be that kind of person, I want so much for this to be that kind of church. Now, the way to get some help here is by avoiding the tragedy of going one way or the other by looking into God's word. It's a great tragedy when churches, and there are churches where this happens, churches allow the hallowing of God's name to collapse into the helping of God's people. That's not hard to understand why that happens either. Because it looks so good at first. It looks so good to be to be helping and helping and helping and helping. And besides, you've got Jesus' words inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me. So there's no difference. And that text, in many churches, has come to be a fog in which the savoring of God's name for God's sake evaporates into the serving of people. It just evaporates. It vanishes in the fog of that text. And so you look around, does anybody really here love God for God? Does anybody delight in God? Does anybody relish God? Does anybody worship God? Does anybody stand in awe of God here in all this service? That's one tragedy. The other tragedy is a church that prides itself in being very God-centered, very scripture-saturated, and they never bear the fruits of love toward people. Prayer becomes a substitute for compassion. Study Becomes a substitute for service. Worship becomes a substitute for witness. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's impossible, isn't it? All evils are possible to human beings. All contradictions are possible to human beings. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately corrupt. And we are able to boast in doctrines of humility. We are able to make the most irrational exchanges and substitutions and neglectings. It is possible. It happens. Now, those two tragedies of the savoring of God's name evaporating into the service of people. So you wonder, is God here? And this preoccupation with God that somehow, in the most deceitful and inexplicable way, doesn't yield the fruit of Care for people. Strange thing. Those two tragedies we must at all costs fight against in our own hearts and in our church. And the way to fight, I believe, one way, is to take a text like verse 10 and to notice its structure and to let the structure of relationships become the structure of our mind. Do not be conformed to this age, but be renewed in your mind, in your thinking. The way that happens is when biblical thought structures come in and push out human thought structures and take their place. That's what I want to happen this morning from verse 10. Let's read it. God is not unjust so as to forget, overlook your work and the love which you showed Literally, toward his name, for his sake, toward his name, literally. In serving the saints as you still do, or in having served the saints and still serving them. Now, notice four things in this text. Number one, God's memory. That's very important. That will wind up being our great encouragement at the end of this message. God never forgets. The work and love shown to his name. Number two, notice the justice of God. God is not unjust so as to forget. So his justice is the foundation of his memory. Number three, notice the service of the saints at the end of the verse. You serve the saints, you are still serving the saints. It's past, it's present, it's the caring, loving, supporting, nurturing, encouraging work of the body toward the body. And fourthly, notice the love shown to the name of God. God is not so unjust as to forget the work and love which you showed toward his name. So there they are. The memory of God, the justice of God, the service of the saints, and love toward the name of God. Now the crucial question here is how do these four realities relate to each other? You can't just take four things and just kind of like a four dice, throw them out there and say, oh, I like that pattern. I like that. You have to ask, in God's mind, how do these four things interrelate? That should be the structure of our thinking. So the question I want to ask is, so as not to neglect any of these, not to interchange any of them, not to let one dissolve into the other or one evaporate out of the other, not to equate when they're not the same, the questions are these. Number one, two questions. How does serving the saints relate to loving the name of God? That's question number one. Second question is, how does God's memory of these things, namely, loving the name of God and serving the saints, how does God's memory of that relate to his justice? Now, those are crucial questions. Number one, how does serving the saints relate to showing love to the name of God? Let's get the text right in front of us. This is the second half of the verse. The work and love which you showed toward his name, and there's no preposition at all in the original, it's just having served the saints and still serving. And almost all the the, uh, English translations are right to stick in the little word in or by or something like that to suggest this, that showing love to the name of God is the end being pursued And serving the saints is the way or method you go about expressing the pursuit of that end. Loving the name of God comes to expression in, but is not the same as serving the saints. If you make the mistake of collapsing the love of God's name into the service of the saints, you lose something utterly crucial here because it's the love of his name that God will not forget. In this verse. Now here's a a fatal mistake. That people make. I believe. They say. See you can tell. Just look at those last two phrases. Look at those last two clauses. Loving the name of God. And and serving people are the same. They're the same. And so you give all your energy. To loving uh, people. And doing good to people. And you In that moment, allow hallowing God's name, which is the first petition in the Lord's Prayer, to evaporate into a kind of religious humanitarianism. And you justify it. By saying, look, the text says they're the same. When I love people, I am loving God. So don't get on my case about not being a person of prayer. Or don't get on my case about not worshiping. Don't get on my case about not having a devotional life. Don't get on my case that my heart doesn't burn for the glory of the Lord. I love people. That happens. Now, what, what are we going to do about that? How do we... Avoid that. The question is, how does the name of, how does loving the name of God relate to serving the people? Now, I've said it's the end pursued and the way it's pursued. I think we can go deeper than that by looking at some other texts. How really, in practical terms, does loving the name of God yield service for the saints? How does savoring God resulting, result in, in service for the saints? Two possibilities I could think of. One is the love of God's name is the desire to see God's name glorified so that you serve in ways that, you know, will glorify God's name. That's one possible answer. Another possible answer is to say, yes, but also this loving God's name is not just desiring that it be glorified. It's delighting in the fact that it already has been glorified and drawing strength and rest and comfort and joy and delight and satisfaction from God. That's loving God's name. Now, those two things are worked out in the scripture. Both are true. Let me give you an illustration. Here's one from Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, whoever gives to one of the least ones of these saints, even a cup of cold water. Now, mark this because he is a disciple of. Truly, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward, meaning God will not forget that work. But what was the work? What was the motive? What was the structure of it? You gave a cup of water to one of these little ones because they were a disciple. What does that mean? It means because they bore the name of Christ and you love the name of Christ. And therefore, your giving of the water is a love to Christ. That little phrase, because they are a disciple, shows the inner motivational structure of the deed of service. Namely, they bear Christ. Christ is written on that person. I love Christ and want to glorify Christ, so I will honor Christ's disciple right now. That's one way to think of the structure of how loving the name results in serving. Here's the second way. Not only is loving the name a desire that it be glorified and honored, but loving the name is the strength that comes from already seeing it honored and glorified. First Peter 4.11 says, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. Now, what's what's going on here as far as strength and motive? What's going on here is you see an opportunity of service, you feel weak and inadequate, you turn and you look up to God and you love his name because from it is flowing strength and love and acceptance and empowerment. And you receive that. And in that act of love, you turn and you let it flow out in service. Now, those two ways of relating love to the name of God and service to the saints are not separate. They always are working in the heart of the saint. Everybody who loves Christ wants his name to be glorified. And everybody who loves Christ has already received enjoyment and strength and enablement from the fact that he is glorified. And therefore, service is here in the middle, grounded by the love of Christ as an enjoyment of him and pursued as the love of Christ, which wants him to be glorified in serving Others, All of that crashes to the ground if you identify loving Christ and loving people. It's gone. The whole biblical structure of ethics evaporates. If you let worship dissolve into witness, if you let prayer dissolve into compassion, if you let study evaporate into serving people, if you are not a worshiping, God-centered, Christ-savoring person because of himself, all of your work will be in vain. That's in this verse. The structure of this verse should become the structure of our minds. Question number two. How does God's justice relate to His memory of our love for His name and our serving the saints? Or let me ask it a different way. Why is it a matter of divine justice that God remember our serving the saints out of love for His name? Why is that justice? We're back at the same point we were making at the Lord's table. Here's the wrong answer. Now get this clear because often to be able to articulate a wrong answer really refines your right answer. A wrong answer says, oh, I've got that. I understand that. I know what justice is. Justice is a day's wage for a day's work. Everybody knows that. A day's wage for a day's work. If you put in eight hours, you all get paid for eight hours. If you get paid for four when you've worked eight, it's not just. So I know what justice is and so I put in, I put in a day's work of serving the saints and what do I get? Pay up God. Justice demands you give me a good day's wage for serving the saints. So clearly, it's clearly that God's justice means he has to remember my work. That's the wrong answer. That's a bad answer. You know why that's wrong? It doesn't get to the heart of divine justice. I tried to get to the heart of divine justice at the table. I'm going to say it again now because it's right here in this text, I believe. Divine justice is not our ability to obligate God by calling attention to the worth of our work. That's human justice. I obligate you to pay me when my work is worth it. If I work for you and I produce a worth, you pay me according to its worth. That's justice. And that's good at the human level because we're on a par here. God's justice proceeds from a different principle. Namely, the infinitely worthy is always upheld. That's justice. And the infinitely worthy is the name of God. And therefore, if you want God by his justice to remember you, you must Live for His name. Now that's what's in the text. God is not unjust. Why? Because He will never forget those who love His name. Got it? What obligates God to remember your work is not the worth of your work, but whether it was done for His name. If it was done for His name, you have tremendous boldness in the presence of God to say, God, stand for your name. And He will. He will never forget anything done out of love for His name. Why? The worth of His name. Oh, what a difference. I hope you get this straight in your own thinking. Because it bears fruit in different living. Let me close with an, an encouragement. I think there's tremendous encouragement in this text to serve one another. To care for each other and help each other and support each other and endure each other. And restore each other. And we also want to be a God-centered church. Where everything is done out of love to the name of God. And I believe in that combination serving the saints and savoring the name is a tremendous power. God will never forget what you do in his name for his name. He will will not forget one note you've ever sent. He will not forget any visit you've ever made. He will not forget any moment on the telephone for another person. He will not forget any turning of the other cheek that nobody noticed but you. He will not forget any unrequited kindness that you think has just evaporated in the universe. Nobody saw it. Nobody cared. He saw. And his justice demands that he remember it. And that it come back upon your head with great blessing in the age to come, if not sooner. So I want you to be encouraged this morning to pursue God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to pursue one another in love and encouragement and kindness and patience and restoration and reconciliation and encouragement. We want to close this service with a particular act of kindness towards a group of people. In the Baptist General Conference, of which we are a part, there is a benevolent fund. And the benevolent fund is designed to help especially older pastors who retired before there was a good retirement plan and live on a shoestring. And secondly, the pastors who come into extraordinary financial stress owing to various things like sickness and so on. What we're going to do is take an offering. Please don't feel pressured here. This is kind of a free will change that you have perhaps in your pocket. Just if you feel good about this. This offering is to the BGC what our helping hand is to Bethlehem. And we're going to sing as we do this. And as the Lord leads, you can just throw in whatever you might have. But mainly, I'm just so eager for you to bow as we sing and process what you've heard in terms of boiling your life down to these two things. Do you savor the name of God and do you serve the saints?